Welcome to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I am Monica Arangolaya. In this episode, I'm talking to Nathan Law, a leading pro-democracy activist in Hong Kong and former legislator, now in exile. Nathan Law is a young Hong Kong activist currently in exile and based in London. During the Umbrella Movement in 2014, Nathan was one of the five representatives who took part in the dialogue with the government, debating political reform. Upholding nonviolent civic actions, Nathan, Joshua Wong and other student leaders founded the Mosestu in 2016 and ran for the Legislative Council election. Nathan was elected with over 50,000 votes and became the youngest legislative councillor in history. Yet, his seat was overturned in July 2017, following Beijing's constitutional reinterpretation, despite international criticism. Nathan was jailed for his participation in the Umbrella Movement. In 2018, Nathan and his fellow student activists, Joshua Wong and Alex Cho, were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by U.S. congressmen and British Parliament members. Due to a risk imposed by the national security law, Nathan left Hong Kong and continues to speak up for Hong Kong people on the international level. In 2020, he was listed as one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine. It's a pleasure to have you with us. My pleasure. You have been involved in advocating for democracy and human rights in various different ways in Hong Kong, through protests, through your role leading a pro-democracy political party, and then as a legislator. Let's start with some of your background. How did you become a leader for democracy in Hong Kong? Yeah, well, uh, I was the student leader of the 2014 Umbrella Movement, which was a massive civil disobedience action uh, in the pursuit of uh, democracy. Uh, I was um, considered as one of the student leaders because I was the head of uh, my university's student union. So uh, we were heavily involved in the movement and then uh, we took some actions and uh, people considered as uh, one of the leaders of the movement. So for me, that was the beginning of my political activism. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Umbrella Movement? What was it about? Yes, um, Hong Kong was handed back to China from the British government in 1997. And uh, in 1980s, uh, when uh, the Chinese government and the British government were negotiating the future of Hong Kong after 1997, uh, Chinese government promised Hong Kong people that we will enjoy one country, two system, and high degree of autonomy, and eventually democracy under their ruling. So back then, Hong Kong people were so nervous about uh, the fact that uh, they are going to under the uh, Communist Party's ruling because um, we all see that in mainland China, uh, the autocratic ruling was staggering. Uh, so after that, Hong Kong people have been fighting for democracy for over three decades. But until um, around 2014, when uh, the discussion of the political reform in 2017, uh, chief executive election, which is our city's leader's election, was ongoing, there were no sites of uh, the Beijing's implementing democracy. 
So people were infuriated, and they decided to take actions. So the civil disobedience actions uh, were emerged, and uh, people wanted to have genuine election to vote their ballot to elect their city's leader. So that was the background of the uh, umbrella movement. And in the movement, we adopted a civil disobedience actions. We occupied the major runways of Hong Kong in order to put pressure to the government. But the the Chinese government was just way too powerful and massive. Uh, we didn't achieve any concrete political reform because of the protest. So what is then your assessment of the effectiveness of this protest? Well, I think uh, the protest indeed uh, awakened a lot of people. Uh, when we're talking about having social movement, is not only about making concrete process, but also making more and more people being involved in political life and making them aware that there are injustice in the society and they have to get involved to, to tackle it. In that perspective, uh, the umbrella movement indeed made much more people more uh, politically active and uh, making the foundation of uh, a protesting society for the uh, for this particular ongoing movement starting from 2019. Let's move to your role as a leader of the Demosisto political party, which was formalized as an organization in 2016. How did this party form? Well, in 2016, uh, after the Umbrella Movement, uh, Joshua and I and the other student leaders, uh, we were thinking about um, continuing the spirit of the Umbrella Movement and injecting youth power into the political scene and also into the parliamentary politics. So for us, uh, we decided to form a youth-led party Demosisto and then ran for the election in 2016. Uh, and by then, I was running for the, the seat I was a complete underdog, but um, I eventually uh, won the election and uh, with a large margin and became the youngest ever legislator in the city at the age of 23. It was quite a remarkable um, result for me. Does that political party still exist? Well, uh, the, the political party was disbanded uh, due to the implementation of the national security law because we were worried that um, all the members of the party would be submitted to years of imprisonment. So for their own sake, uh, we had to do it. That is very interesting, because in a way, two things are being mixed here. One is the role of protest and speaking up, and then being able to be part of government, at least as a legislator. You held that role very briefly due to a controversy over your oath. What happened at the oath ceremony? Yeah, well, uh, after you are elected, you have to take the oath um, to resume office. And uh, there has been a tradition of uh, legislators in Hong Kong to make political statement before and after the oath. So back then, I followed that tradition. I quoted uh, Gandhi, and I said that I will uh, serve the people instead of the autocratic regime. And... Uh, the oath taking was approved. Um, I served the council for almost a year, uh, but the Beijing government that didn't like that um, uh, approval. They basically uh, reinterpret our constitution and then implement new restriction on uh, the oath taking process after my oath, and then to apply it retrospectively. So I made a legitimate oath. 
but the government said that um they they just didn't like it so they um amended uh our uh restriction and distorted our legal system and apply it retrospectively therefore i was disqualified after nine months of serving and that reinterpretation of uh, our constitution was seen as a massive uh, encroachment on our rule of law because the reinterpretation was made by the uh, political party in China, which they uh, were not making it because of uh, well legal perspective, but as a uh, political suppression. How did you find the Legislative Council? Do you think change is possible from such position? Well, I've always uh, said that uh, Legislative Council is just a platform for you to um, trick a political um, power and also making your demands and your opinion more visible. But at the end of the day, we, we still have to rely on uh, the resistance and uh, the pressure outside the system in order to really make a systematic change. So um, my role as a legislator back then was merely an assistant um, identity uh, for my activism. I still continue to protest, to participate in uh, political activism, and to try to make a change outside the system. Those particular elections were symbolic in that former protesters and pro-democracy activists had an official political mandate. Does this translate into political action? Well, um, by then, in 2016, uh, people were quite upset about the politics, but they didn't really translate it into actions. Uh, for example, direct protests or demonstrations. So I think um, using ballot to express their opinion is one of the ways uh, that they express their uh, political resentment in this uh, low tides of um, political protest. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, that was one of the ways that they pr expressed themselves. What do you see as the role of human rights in your work? Well, I think democracy, freedom, and human rights are closely correlated concepts, and um, a lot of um, the, 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 the concrete uh, innotation that they share overlapped. So I think uh, it's important that we uh, understand that without the protection of democracy, freedom and human rights could be very fragile. Hong Kong is a perfect example um, in 1997, when Hong Kong was handed back from the British government to, to China, uh, we were kind of um, getting rid of our, uh, our colonial status. But in fact, uh, the last decades of Hong Kong's governance under the British uh, go government, um, it implemented a lot of um, free freedom elements in Hong Kong. Where freedom of expression, freedom of um, movement, um, uh, freedom of uh, a lot of other things, that Hong Kong was praised as uh, the beacon of free, uh, the beacon of freedom in Asia. So that was actually quite a remarkable, um, uh, uh, re remarkable honor for Hong Kong. But uh, under Chinese ruling, even though we were like um, going back to. Uh, the country and 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 un, uh, as a city, but our freedom has been um, eroded or even demolished. Under that, uh, is because that is because we just cannot elect our legislature and our uh, executive. Uh, the the top leaders of Hong Kong serve the interests of 
Beijing instead of the interests of Hong Kong people. So I think um, we've been witnessing uh, the fading of our freedom. And uh, that's, pe- that's why people w- want a democracy so badly, because that could protect us from uh, this autocratic ruling that destroy our system. Protests in Hong Kong are part of a long story to pursue democracy, and they are not new. However, in June 2019, the world saw the biggest demonstration recorded so far, with a quarter of the population in the streets trying to block a piece of legislation that would extradite Hong Kong citizens to China to face trial. The legislation was withdrawn in October 2019. Why was such protest so important? Well, uh, under that uh, extradition law, uh, Hong Kong people could be extradited back to China. And uh, basically, China, as a city without any sense of rule of law, they could drum up cases and order the Hong Kong government to extradite anyone that they want back to mainland China. And Hong Kong government won't refuse that because they are basically the puppet of the Chinese government. So it triggered a lot of anger in the society and it was translated to a massive uh, movement that uh, was involved more than a million people. And uh, yeah, that that, that was uh, the start of uh, the whole anti-extradition and um, freedom fighting movement, and uh, even though that uh, implement uh, that uh, proposal of the extradition law was uh, withdrawn by the government afterwards, but the the, the movement has evolved uh, to a movement that fights for uh, holding the police accountable, um, addressing the police brutality and the lack of autonomy of Hong Kong as a whole, to uh, an um, a more um, comprehensive demand movement. So, um, yeah, that was uh, really a conglomeration of the city's uh, failure in terms of governments. And uh, Hong Kong people were very determined to fight back the things that they deserve. These protests, as you point out, quickly became something bigger. How was this change? Or were there any specific demands? And if so, any of these demands have been met? Yeah, um, the five demands in the in the movement uh, was the consensus of the protesters, namely the withdrawal of the extradition treaty, uh, extradition agreement, which it was accomplished, and um, setting up an independent inquiry commission on police brutality, having a democracy, and uh, stop labeling the movement as riots, and um, properly. Um, release uh, all the uh, political prisoners, and the the other demands, uh, the government have ha, ha, has not even like committed anything to address them. The protesters have taken the slogan "Be Water." What does this mean? Well, "Be Water" um, is a slogan originally from Bruce Lee, uh, a martial arts master, and uh, it it means that we have to be very fluid in terms of uh, our strategy and tactics so that we could be um unpredictable and the government is hard to um attacking us uh, by um attacking the weakness because we 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 always shift our form so we have less weakness so it is a philosophy that largely adopted by the protesters and it uh, was manifest in terms of how we protest and uh, 
how we will choose resistance movement. With the escalating protests and demonstrations, violence has also escalated. There have been reports of the use of water cannons, tear gas and pepper spray to disperse protesters. What do protesters face in the streets? Well, it was uh, a very traumatic and um, haunting year for a lot of Hong Kong people because when people marched down to the street, at the very beginning, all peacefully, uh, what they faced was the baton from the police, uh, water cannons, rubber bullets, endless tear gas. And these are very terrifying. Like, I've been there. I've been facing uh, the rates of um, the the riot police and um, and all of uh, the firearms that they are equipped and firing to the crowd. Those were terrifying. Um, so for me, I think it's an extremely traumatic experience, especially we're under a regime that they will do everything to protect the police from being investigated from being um, identified and, and taking responsibility. So, yeah, that well, these uh, protesters, they, they, they risk themselves and they're exposed to police brutality and arrests um, and charges that will put them in jail for years or even um, for some, they are tortured and allegedly sexually abused in the police station and, and these are really staggering experience and, and stories that make a lot of Hong Kong people really infuriated um, about uh, the behaviors of the police. Another important aspect in the protest has been the use of technology to dissipate and prosecute protesters, creating serious concerns for human rights. What type of technologies are used and how? Yeah, the police um, have technology that they could crack into the protesters' phone even without the warrant from uh, the court and then to um, collect the information. And also they have been tracing, the protesters tracing um, people that they want, that they suspect that they're involved in uh, the movement by um, different te- technological appliances, for example, a GPS tracker installing in your car and things like that. So um, those are, are worrying tactics um, that the police has been using. How has the movement evolved from peaceful manifestations, for example, as the Umbrella Revolution, to a struggle facing so much violence? Well, I think the, the most crucial turning points would be uh, the protesters realizing the unlimited and improportional police brutality are not checked. They started to think of ways to protect themselves, for example, making fire barricades or things like that. I think the turning point would definitely be uh, because we, we have a police force, um, legitimate use of violence from the government without any checks and balances. So people, they started to think about um, fighting back. Do you feel there is a division in society? Well, of course, uh, there is polarization. And in fact, there have been a growing polarization in every single societies. But in Hong Kong, um, people who are in favor of uh, the democracy has always been the majority. And there are demands in the movement, for example, 
uh, setting up an independent inquiry commission on police brutality and also democracy, um, they once gained more than 80% of support in the society. There's an overwhelming majority. So I would say that, yes, that is a deficient, but uh, the majority has always been in the support of uh, the movement and the democracy. Are there people in favor of the police while acknowledging all of this police brutality and violence? Well, of course, um, there are, is always 10% to 20% minority in the society that they omit all the facts and they wholeheartedly support the police because they think that they bring them stability and some of them are the relatives of the police or police themselves. So, um, yeah, that is a group of them. And also there are lots of opportunists that they just feel like aligning with the Communist Party could grant them material rewards. So they are doing so. Do you think that bridges can be built between these two parts of society? Well, definitely it has to start with having truth and having um, democracy, a, a, a structural and systematic change in order to mend the rift. Otherwise, it's impossible for us to pretend nothing happened because there are indeed people getting hurt, a lot of injustice, and to say that we're going to reconciliate, um, it is not going to happen. It, it has to start with systematic reform. Do you think the demonstrations have changed Hong Kong? Well, of course, but uh, it's in response to the change made by the government. Hong Kong is no longer the one that we used to know. Uh, the democracy has never arrived. Uh, freedom has been fading. And under the national security law, our freedom of expression is demolished. And people are living in fear and, and white terror. And you, you, you can never imagine that like 20 years ago. So in Hong Kong, yes, indeed, uh, protests shake the movement and is in re response to the heavy-handed approach by the Beijing government. How has the coronavirus affected the protests? Well, uh, the coronavirus grants the, um, the government a convenient excuse to halt any public gathering and demonstrations, and that is indeed the case. So uh, it basically helped them to quiet down the movement. Um, but on the other hand, of course, we understand that the importance of public health uh, and the government, uh, even though like they have the implement measures like that, there are just a lot of uh, exercise of uh, that public gathering ban on the protesters with absurd, um, uh, absurd implementation. Um, there are cases like there's only one protester standing there. They are also, the police are also sending fined them, accusing them breaking the public gathering law. And it, it was so ridiculous. The National Security Law 2020 was recently adopted and poses serious concerns for human rights, particularly to the right to peaceful assembly, as well as the right to privacy. What is this law about? Well, this is a, a law that directly imposed by Beijing government and circumventing all the local legislation and consultation process. And the law, um, well, basically says certain behaviors, including secession, subversion, colluding with foreign forces, and etc., is violating the law, and it governs uh, the speech and uh, the mind of people, basically. So, uh, 
the Chinese government and the chief executive have been saying that is a law ta- that targets violent protest, but in fact it is not. It, it targets peaceful demonstration and freedom of expression. Uh, there are many cases uh, under the law that uh, the police arrested people who were just merely chanting the slogan, posting something on social media, or having a flag that have the po- protest slogan on. So these are uh, political crime and, and um, speech crime. And that is the true nature of the, the, the law, is to quash our freedom of expression. How did the adoption of this law influence you to leave Hong Kong? Well, um, the law obviously targets uh, prominent activists and also people who have been working on the international front, having international advocacy work that targets Beijing and hoping the international community could put more pressure to constrain the authoritarian expansion, China. So um, I clearly understand uh, that was targeting my work and I decided to leave because I think it's important that we have a voice on the international level that is free from the threat of the national security law and could continue to voice for Hong Kong people. And that is what I'm doing. It seems that the change towards more control from China is being canvassed through using the rule of law or the adoption of these laws that we have been discussing. This would look like a democratic process. Is there a rule of law without democracy? Well, I think it's very, very difficult because um, democracy, the aim of democracy, democratic system is to generate democratic accountability, which is to prevent the government doing whatever they like. So um, most of the time, destroying the rule of law benefits the government because the courts under their control could always give a preferred judgment and result for them. So I think, indeed, without democracy, rule of law and freedom are very fragile. Given that the Chinese authorities' response has been so heavy-handed, do you see protest as nevertheless having an important role in keeping human rights alive? And what do you think that their role is? Yeah, I think protesters play an important role to remind all of us that the struggle is ongoing, there are people suffering on a daily basis, and there are injustices in the society, which is massive. So I think this is uh, the signal that protests t- could give us and could mobilize and push us forward to commit ourselves into the fight against injustice. What do you think is next for Hong Kong? I think it's important that for Hong Kong people, we, we keep our resilience and tenacity and we continue to protest in the forms that could allow us to magnify our impact. And for me as a activist in exile, I will continue to be the voice of Hong Kong and to meet with politicians and NGOs and um, presence uh, on the internet and the media to urge the world to take actions to constrain the Chinese authoritarian expansion. Do you see any other alternative approaches from outside Hong Kong? Well, I think uh, if it's in terms of, of how the international community could react, we definitely need a more proactive and a multilateral and collect, collective approach to really tackle um, 
the problem of uh, China's rising authoritarianism because this is not only about Xinjiang people, Hong Kong people, but it's also about our democratic values. The growing authoritarianism justify themselves and they're trying to infiltrate into democracies by sharp power, soft power, and all the technological um, methods that they have been deploying and to discredit and dismantle democracy inside out. So I think this is actually a very important task for the, the, the global community to work together and to restrain that influence. Is this also about human rights? Well, yes, of course. Uh, well, the authoritarian regime abuses human rights and people's, like their rights are deprived and they are living in fear. And that's what's happening in mainland China. Finally, what are your plans for the near future? Well, um, I'll continue to be the voice of Hong Kong and continue to magnify the influence of uh, the resistance movement and urge the international community to help and to safeguard democratic values together. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much. Rights Hub is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Kira Ong. This episode was co-produced by Sandra Friedman and Monica Arango-Olaja, edited by Christy Calawon-Gale and hosted by Monica Arango-Olaja. Music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Dobby. Thanks to our production team members, Megan Campbell, Gauri Pillai, Natasha Holcroft, and for their valuable feedback in putting this episode together. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts.